Welcome to Songs of Praise from 3ABN Australia Radio.
my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my. i mm-hmm.
This is Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. But until then 
Into 
listening to songs of praise Friend, your 
was lost in sin But Jesus took me in And then a little light from heaven filled my soul It bathed my heart in love And wrote my name above And just a little talk with Jesus made me whole Now let us have a little talk with Jesus Let us tell him all about our troubles He will hear our faintest cry Then you'll know a little fire is burning You will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right Sometimes my path seems drear Without a ray of cheer And that a cloud of doubt may hide the light of day The mist of sin may rise And hide the starry skies But just a little talk with Jesus clears the way now let us have a little talk with Jesus Let us tell him all about our troubles He will hear our faintest cry Answer by and by When you feel a little prayer will turning And you'll know a little fire is burning You will find a little talk with Jesus Makes it right I may have doubts and fears My eyes be filled with tears But Jesus is a friend who watches day and night I go to him in prayer He knows my every care And just a little talk with Jesus makes it right Now let us have a little talk with Jesus Let us tell him all about our troubles He will hear our faintest cry He will answer by and by When you feel a little prayer will turn in Then you'll know a little fire is burning You will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right Find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. And we 
are days when clouds surround us and the rain begins to fall. The cold and lonely winds won't cease to blow. And there seems to be no reason for the suffering we feel. We are tempted to believe God does not know when the storms arise. Don't forget we walk by faith and not by sight.
listening to 3ABN Australia Radio's Songs of Praise. Alas, indeed, my Saviour bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head such a one as I At the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burden of my heart Rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight And now Happy all that day Was he for crimes That I had done He groaned upon the tree
You've been listening to Songs of Praise, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, Two Worshippers. We shall make the Apostles' confession our own. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.18 God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14 In harmony with this experience is the command, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. God does not bid you fear that he will fail to fulfill his promises, that his patience will weary or his compassion be found wanting. Fear lest your will shall not be held in subjection to Christ's will, lest your hereditary and cultivated traits of character shall control your life. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Fear, lest self shall interpose between yourself and the great master worker. Fear, lest self-will shall mar the high purpose that through you God desires to accomplish. Fear to trust to your own strength. Fear to withdraw your hand from the hand of Christ and attempt to walk life's pathway without his abiding presence. We need to shun everything that would encourage pride and self-sufficiency. 
Therefore, we should beware of giving or receiving flattery or praise. It is Satan's work to flatter. He deals in flattery as well as in accusing and condemnation. Thus he seeks to work the ruin of the soul. Those who would give praise to men are used by Satan as his agents. Let the workers of Christ direct every word of praise away from themselves. Let self be put out of sight. Christ alone is to be exalted. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, let every eye be directed and praise from every heart ascend. Revelation 1 verse 5. The life in which the fear of the Lord is cherished will not be a life of sadness and gloom. It is the absence of Christ that makes the countenance sad and the life a pilgrimage of sighs. Those who are filled with self-esteem and self-love do not feel the need of a living personal union with Christ. The heart that has not fallen on the rock is proud of its wholeness. Men want a dignified religion. They desire to walk in a path wide enough to take in their own attributes. Their self-love, their love of popularity and love of praise exclude the Saviour from their hearts, and without Him there is gloom and sadness. But Christ dwelling in the soul is a wellspring of joy. For all who receive Him, the very keynote of the Word of God is rejoicing. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57 verse 15 It was when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock that he beheld the glory of God. It is when we hide in the riven rock that Christ will cover us with his own pierced hand, and we shall hear what the Lord saith unto his servants. To us as to Moses, God will reveal himself as merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The work of redemption involves consequences of which it is difficult for man to have any conception. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 As the sinner, drawn by the power of Christ, approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it, there is a new creation. A new heart is given him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. Holiness finds that it has nothing more to require. God himself is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3 verse 26. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans 8 verse 30. Great as is the shame and degradation through sin, even greater will be the honor and exaltation through redeeming love. To human beings striving for conformity to the divine image, there is imparted an outlay of heaven's treasure, an excellency of power that will place them higher than even the angels who have never fallen. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. 
Isaiah 49, verse 7. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Shall not God avenge his own? This chapter is based on Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Christ had been speaking of the period just before his second coming, and of the perils through which his followers must pass. With special reference to that time, he related the parable to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. There was in a city, he said, a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. The judge who is here pictured had no regard for right nor pity for suffering. The widow who pressed her case before him was persistently repulsed. Again and again she came to him only to be treated with contempt and to be driven from the judgment seat. The judge knew that her cause was righteous and he could have relieved her at once, but he would not. He wanted to show his arbitrary power and it gratified him to let her ask and plead and entreat in vain. But she would not fail nor become discouraged. Notwithstanding his indifference and hard-heartedness, she pressed her petition until the judge consented to attend her case. Though I fear not God nor regard man, he said, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. To save his reputation, to avoid giving publicity to his partial one-sided judgment, he avenged the persevering woman. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Christ here draws a sharp contrast between the unjust judge and God. The judge yielded to the widow's request merely through selfishness, that he might be relieved of her importunity. He felt for her no pity or compassion. Her misery was nothing to him. How different is the attitude of God toward those who seek him. The appeals of the needy and distressed are considered by him with infinite compassion. The woman who entreated the judge for justice had lost her husband by death. Poor and friendless, she had no means of retrieving her ruined fortunes. So, by sin, man lost his connection with God. Of himself he has no means of salvation. But in Christ we are brought nigh unto the Father. The elect of God are dear to his heart. They are those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvellous light to show forth his praise, to shine as lights amid the darkness of the world. The unjust judge had no special interest in the widow who importuned him for deliverance. Yet in order to rid himself of her pitiful appeals, he heard her plea and delivered her from her adversary. But God 
loves his children with infinite love. To him, the dearest object on earth is his church. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land in the waste, howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 and 10. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2, verse 8. The widow's prayer, Avenge me, do me justice, of mine adversary, represents the prayer of God's children. Satan is their great adversary. He is the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. Revelation 12, verse 10. He is continually working to misrepresent and accuse, to deceive and destroy the people of God. And it is for deliverance from the power of Satan and his agents that in this parable Christ teaches his disciples to pray. In the prophecy of Zechariah is brought to view Satan's accusing work and the work of Christ in resisting the adversary of his people. The prophet says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Zechariah 3 verses 1 to 3. The people of God are here represented as a criminal on trial. Joshua, as high priest, is seeking for a blessing for his people who are in great affliction. While he is pleading before God, Satan is standing at his right hand as his adversary. He is accusing the children of God and making their case appear as desperate as possible. He presents before the Lord their evil doings and their defects. He shows their faults and failures, hoping they will appear of such a character in the eyes of Christ that he will render them no help in their great need. Joshua, as the representative of God's people, stands under condemnation, clothed with filthy garments. Aware of the sins of his people, he is weighed down with discouragement. Satan is pressing upon his soul a sense of guiltiness that makes him feel almost hopeless. Yet there he stands as a suppliant, with Satan arrayed against him. The work of Satan as an accuser began in heaven. This has been his work on earth ever since man's fall, and it will be his work in a special sense as we approach nearer to the close of this world's history. As he sees that his time is short, he will work with greater earnestness to deceive and destroy. He is angry when he sees a people on the earth who, even in their weakness and sinfulness, have respect to the law of Jehovah. He is determined that they shall not obey God. He delights in their unworthiness and has devices prepared for every soul that all may be ensnared and separated from God. He seeks to accuse and condemn God and all who strive to carry out his purposes in this world in mercy and love, in compassion and forgiveness. Every manifestation of God's power for his people arouses the enmity of Satan. Every time God works in their behalf, Satan with his angels works with renewed vigor to compass their ruin. 
He is jealous of all who make Christ their strength. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. For a long time, the health work has been heavily promoted in our church and central to our evangelistic strategy. Reports today speak of the Adventist Blue Zones and note how Seventh-day Adventists live between six and eight years longer than the rest of the population. The rates of disease such as cancer and heart disease are significantly lower than the rest of the population and some diseases such as lung cancer are almost non-existent. How did this come to be? Was it luck? Was it chance? Or was it something greater than that? In 1863 in Otsego, Michigan, Ellen White was given her health vision where she was shown things that were way ahead of the medical practices of her time. For example, she was shown that tobacco was a slow, insidious, and most malignant poison, common knowledge to us today. Yet in her time, the medical wisdom would have prescribed or at least not deterred you from using tobacco should you have any throat or lung issues. It wasn't until a hundred years later when the Surgeon General of the United States finally condemned the use of tobacco. The vision was very broad in scope and encouraged holistic health and natural preventative medicine. Whilst there is always a need for acute care, preventative medicine seeks to prevent as much as possible disease in the body. Under Ellen White's guidance, they set up a health institute called the Western Health Reform Institute. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, today most famous for the world-renowned breakfast cereals that he invented, became the director of this institute at the young age of 24. John Harvey Kellogg attended some of the best medical schools in his day, the University Medical School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the New York University Medical College at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. He graduated in 1875 and would go on to be one of the leading doctors in the United States, treating both the rich and famous as well as those less fortunate. He changed the name to the Battle Creek Health Sanitarium. Sanitarium is a twist on the word sanatorium, which was a health resort for invalid soldiers. Replacing the O with an A, he thus created a new word for the English language. (music) 
he would go on to pioneer some of the best medical practices of his day and invent some ingenious machines that were the forerunners of much of the modern equipment you'll see today in a gym, such as this rowing machine and Gripmaster. Many of these were on the Titanic when it set sail for use by its wealthy passengers. The sanitarium would start out as a great witness to the message that God had given, but it would later veer off track. Unfortunately today, this message has often been neglected. And while many recognize that we do have a message and understand the truth and validity of it, many people do not live up to what they know about health. The health work was created to be the right arm. It was to assist the gospel, not to be isolated on its own, but to work harmoniously together. Healthy living was not to be an end in itself, but its purpose was to work with the gospel, creating an opening wedge to people's hearts. May we implement these principles first in our lives and then also in the churches we are a part of as we witness to the communities we live in. For more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.